0: That's both the hosts. Everything's covered. Yay. This is our show about uh, Kansas City, the Midwest, politics, cool people doing cool things.
1: Being married, doing married things.
0: Doing married things. <laughs> what kind of married things have we been doing lately? I
1: don't know. We, oh, we went to St. Louis and we saw a Beck, which was great. That's not a Kansas City thing, though, but it's <laughs> a married thing.
0: It is a Midwestern thing. I think it yes. fits within the purview of yeah. the show. Uh, and also, just a real delight of timing because it meant we could miss... The Democratic debates that night. Oh, we were free, but then we had our phones, so we were just checking Twitter between bands <laughs> to be like, "Can you believe what they're saying now?" Uh, one of our producers is here. Hello, Kit Kat.
1: Hello, Kit
0: Kat. That's Bernstein. Uh, goodbye. Oh, oh, he he loves a good woman's shoe, and uh, that brings us to our our guest today. Uh, today we are joined by.
2: My name is Rachel McCarthy James, and I do have particularly
0: good smelling shoes. <laughs> My goodness, it's really just...
1: This is not interesting for anyone listening, but Bernstein is standing on his hind legs to to smell Rachel's shoe, and it is the cutest thing I've ever seen.
0: Ever? Ever. You've seen me before, right?
1: I'm sorry, baby, this is cuter. I've seen your kittens before, too, I have to say.
2: This is pretty cute, but that was cuter. Kittens are always cuter. Rachel, (laughs) who are you and what do you do? Great start. Uh, I am a writer. I live in Lawrence, Kansas, which is about an hour or so away. And I, in 2017, I published a book with my dad, uh, baseball's Bill James, uh, called The Man from the Train, which is about a series of axe murders from about 100 years ago. A little more than that now. Um, so people from
0: sports will know Bill James yes. as the inventor of Sabernomics?
2: Sabermetrics, yes. Sabermetrics. I love Sabernomics, though. Sabernomics, I'm going to pass that please one Please tell on him, to him about that one. Yes. Yeah,
0: basically, he's the guy that invented Moneyball. Uh, yes. So if you've yep. seen the film Moneyball, uh, he is a journalist that, that does a lot of work in that. And he's, in he's in Moneyball. He's in Moneyball. He's in Moneyball. Is your dad Fett. Brad Pitt?
2: He, <laughs> <laughs> he is not Brad Pitt. No, he is not. He's
0: I think not. you're misremembering who did the Moneyball in that movie.
2: <laughs> I definitely am. He's okay. actually <laughs> his real face up there for like... Fifteen seconds or whatever, Fantastic. and they talk about him a few times. And actually, that was uh, we went to see that on my honeymoon, and <laughs> my husband fell asleep in the middle of it, so I had to wake him up a few times, like they're talking about your new father-in-law. Come and on what now. he
0: does is exciting. Yes, yes. Sabernomics.
2: Sabernomics. <laughs> oh, it sounds
0: like it should be the the math of swords.
2: The math. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Even though I'm all about axes these days. So tell so, me, axonomics. Ax- Ax- <laughs> uh.
0: So tell Let's me about Muller. Uh,
2: Paul Muller. We're ne- never sure how to pronounce it. Mueller, Muller. It kind of varies from place to place. So um, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about how I came on that this Great. project. Um, so I was about – I lived in Roanoke, Virginia at the time. And my dad sent me, in May 2012, he sent me the first chapter of this called The Bloody Penny, which is about a place called uh, Hurley, Virginia, a tiny little town about an hour away from Roanoke. So he sent it to me, and it was like 30 pages, and I was like, Dad, why are you sending this to me? I, uh, you know... I'm not that engaged in your uh, your, your pursuits. <laughs> um, and then uh, right as I was about to move a few months later, uh, he was like, I need a research assistant for this book. Uh, and my mom was like, why don't you hire Rachel? So he sent me this, and he did a little test first. And he was like, okay, so... I've sent you this first one, which doesn't mention Mueller or Valeska
0: or were, anything like for, that. For, for the people that are listening yes. to the audio right now, they just keep hearing the book being flipped through the pages. <laughs> like You you're, you have such a nervous energy, but I think it's good for sound.
2: <laughs> there you go. There you go. The That's it, it's a book. It's real. Uh, yes. You can find it in any bookstore. <laughs> so uh, he sent me this. Didn't tell me any of the context about it. We didn't even know about Mueller at that point. Um and he said, OK, so read this and see if you can find anything else. And fortunately, if you uh, Google axe murders, Valeska is what comes up immediately. So I looked at it, looked at this, and saw the similarities and said, OK, well, obviously, it's about the Valeska axe murders, which were a famous unsolved crime that happened in uh, June 1912. That's and that's eight
0: people, right, in one eight night? Eight people
2: in one night, which was not his highest uh one-night kill count, but it was one of the highest. And this, um, so it was an unexplained murder, prominent family in town, um, and half the town was convinced that his business rival, whom I believe the uh, victim, J.B. Moore, was having an affair with his wife, people thought that he murdered... J.B. Moore and his wife and their children and then two little neighbor children who happened to be staying there, which is really intense. Um, But most people believe that it was unsolved. Nobody knew who did it. They knew that there were a few other crimes around the same time Mm -hmm. um, that were similar and probably by the same person, but nobody knew who it was. And this is happening
0: sort of uh, within the the couple of years of basically Jack the Ripper. But uh, uh, these are aligning in such a way that like, the concept of a transient serial killer, or even a serial killer, didn't exist. So people all over the country were having these similar axe murders that fit a time frame But it would never occur to somebody that it wasn't somebody that, like, knew the victims or had, like, a reason to kill them. Well,
2: they didn't. He didn't have a reason. Yeah, the idea of a serial murderer was completely foreign to them. Occasionally they would catch on, and uh, around the time of Valeska, they did know that somebody was going around the country killing families. He was called Billy the Axeman. Um, but in Valesca specifically, what turned it into legend um, was they pretty much disregarded that immediately. And the town was caught up for more than a decade in these different trials and factions that had split this town into two. Um, so that's what made it so long lasting. That feels like a the, play, that, like yeah. a, a
0: weird R-Town where like everyone right. has to pick a side <laughs> in an axe murder.
2: <laughs> Actually, um, there is a similar Iowa axe murder Um, That a couple of people have suggested to me is related, but which I don't believe is, uh, which inspired a play called Trifles, which you might not have heard of. It's by Susan Glassbell. And I knew it because I used to be a tutor at a community college and we would get like 20 papers a year that were about trifles. So I already knew about it (laughs) from that. Um, but there were a ton of axe murderers just in general in this period. <laughs> it was an, an- in the phrase dad uses is an aneurysm of axe murders. And it really was. Um,
0: is there it because was the... everyone had access to axes and guns didn't work in that way yet?
2: Guns were starting to work as part of the interesting thing. Guns were stef- definitely starting to work. Um, you know, I looked at a lot of crimes, other crimes unrelated to this, uh, through these decades that he was active, which is roughly 1898, to 1914 Um, and there were definitely a lot of gun murders a lot of shootings Um, but it's interesting because you know axes and this is the subject of my next book which is uh, um, about the history of axe murders it's interesting well you've already done your research for book two which is kind of (laughs) nice I have not at all but I know very well about you know writing about uh, very Slightly on the edge of pulpy axe murders, which is good for convincing people to let me write more (laughs) about the general history of axes and axe murders and violence and whatnot. But what's interesting is, you know, axes are an ancient technology. There have always been axe murders. Um, But for some reason, in the late 1800s, late 19th century, early 20th century, there really were just a lot of people who were using axes to murder people. There's the New Orleans Axeman. There's Lizzie Borden, obviously. Um, there's a bunch of other unsolved murders that we don't know about, uh, which I talk about, a few of which I talk about in the book.
0: The New Orleans Axe murderer was mostly, as I believe, isn't it that he was murdering people that didn't appreciate jazz enough? <laughs> Wasn't that the...
2: <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. The thing that distinguishes him from Paul Mueller, our guy, is that Paul Mueller was really good at what he was doing. He was very... Um, efficient okay basically in it's uh, basically if he entered your house you were gonna be dead within about two minutes he uh-huh. was very quick he knew when to attack he knew when everybody was sleeping so basically you didn't wake up which is you know a small mercy Um And whereas the Axemen in New Orleans, you know, a lot of people got away. It was very messy. um, A lot of people survived. So there were some differences there. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, so yeah, there were a lot. of, And it's partially because um, this was a stage where uh, deforesting America was a really big task. Uh, When white people came over to... Colonize is the you know nicest right. possible term you can use for that. Um, Europe was very deforested after uh-huh. centuries of civilization and building cities, um, whereas the forests of America were very thick. And uh, there was a lot to get through and you had to build roads and railroads and things like that, which need a lot of wood. Plus they were, plus you needed houses, um, wood for houses as well, obviously. Uh, So there was a lot of trees to chop down and a lot of um, basic household tasks that depended upon axes. So an axe was a common thing to just have around the house um, and just leave out in your yard, which is what he would do in a lot of these cases, is he would pick up, an axe from their yard, their woodpile in their yard, or a neighbor's yard, uh-huh. use that, uh, kill them, and then drop the axe where it was. So he didn't carry his axe with him. He just picked it up when he saw it as he was going through these neighborhoods.
0: This is such a weird version of like, well, because of colonialization, yeah. <laughs> everyone had to have axes, yes. and uh, in a, in a small way, in repayment for all of the native peoples that white people killed, White people had to deal with a lot of axe murders as yeah. a result. <laughs> That's, uh, I suppose
2: so. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. Uh, yeah.
0: So, I, well, I've never thought of axe murders as coming from colonialization, so yeah, here we yeah. are.
2: <laughs> yeah, everything in America can be traced back to colonialization, mm-hmm. I think, in some ways.
1: I'm so fascinated by the idea of, like, I mean, when I think of axe murderers, I think of, like, I don't... I'm wondering how graphic this is going to come out. Mm -hmm. Like, a very violent, like, hacking-to-bits sort of Mm -hmm. crime. And so the idea that, like, he did it while people were sleeping. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just, I don't know. I'm so fascinated by, like, what the
2: psychology of that is. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting is that he actually didn't hack in the way most people are thinking. Mm -hmm. He used the blunt end of the axe. So instead of using the sharp end, which could... What we think is basically it might get stuck in the body and then be hard to pull out. Whereas the blunt end of the axe, you could, you know, the you aim it, it ahead, aim it. it's easy to bash, go on to the next one, bash, go very quickly through the house and get it done. I would um, never
0: in a million of years have guessed that these were axe murders with the other the side. The other yeah. side.
2: That's, that's one of the central things that I looked for. In fact, I would say that's one of the number one things I looked for in distinguishing um, an event that we think is related versus an event that we think is unrelated uh-huh. is the back of the axe.
0: So this jumps forward a little bit here, and, and then we'll go back and yes. fill some of it in. But uh, ostensibly, you guys start with a single axe murder event, and then the two of you meticulously research all these other events And at the end of the book, you've basically got 50-ish murders that you're positive are him, and up to 100 that you think you can make a pretty good case for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you've uncovered the most successful serial killer in history— more than a hundred years later as a project with your dad, which is like every part of this is, is its own movie, I think, but.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's not, uh, it's been a, definitely a wild ride. A lot of left turns when I came on the case and uh, it wasn't a single case really. So people had been looking at this. There's a lot of excellent, um, there is an excellent documentary about this called Valeska Living with a Mystery that goes into it. Um, and a big starting point for us was a random research paper written by a woman in uh, Colorado who was doing an online master's degree at Emporia State University
0: who just – Incredible. Yeah, I'm glad Emporia I worked in here. Like-
2: <laughs> I know. Isn't that funny? Um, and she – Our producer is trying to eat your book now. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Cats have been smell. my cats have been smelling that as well. So he's lots of, lots of cat smells. Um, so, um, sorry (laughs) to your producer or to your editor. Um, so. No, it's uh, Woodward
0: and Bernstein. They're appreciating your journalism. (laughs) I'm sure of it.
2: I appreciate that. Um. So yeah, so we were already working, and this this paper was kind of famous throughout the internet. It's on her random like, here's all my Christmas cards, and also here's this paper I did about axe murder, which is really interesting. (laughs) What (laughs) she looked into, she got into it because um, her grand great grandmother had been axe murdered. And they thought that her cousin who ax murdered her was also responsible for Valeska. And she looked into it and she said, well, he definitely killed my grandmother, but I don't think he did Valeska. So that's how she got into it. And Uh. just did this really comprehensive essay um, essay about it that was really a good starting point because she lined up all of the different um, characteristics we were looking at. And so that was a really good starting point for us. Uh, then from there, I started looking for more. My dad hired me first just to look in like 1907, 1908 um, because he wasn't finding anything there. He didn't know yet that that was actually like a an empty period for him. We don't know what he was doing, if he was in jail or what, but he wasn't murdering then. Um, so I... I just moved to Lawrence. I wanted to, which is where I grew up, which is where my parents live. Um, I just moved back there with my husband and I needed a job. So I was like, why don't you let me continue looking earlier in the decade to see if I can string this out a little bit longer? And I started finding a lot of murders. Um, pretty much as soon as I started looking into 1906, 1905, 1904, I was finding a ton of events. So we knew we were on to something. Um, But within a couple of months of me starting, I was looking into a related crime. And at the very end of um, this unrelated crime in Maine... Um, there was a line about, this is surely the same fiend who killed the Newton family in Brookfield uh, two years ago. And I'm like, okay, I've got to look it up. And um, so I Google it. I go to this weird uh, history of the Massachusetts Police Department from 1600 to 1904. Um, I go look through that, trying to find out more information about this. And I get to a description of this, and it's hitting everything back of the axe family attacked while sleeping uh, little girl lamp left off the chin ch- uh chimney left off the lamp uh windows covered uh door locked from the inside etc and I'm like oh my god this is clearly an event and then at the end it says uh the person who committed this was Paul Mueller the hired hand who was last seen headed for the train and at That second, I was like, "Holy shit! Did I just solve this? I didn't just solve this, did I? What happened? Is this for real?" And also, somebody
0: solved this a hundred years ago, and no one put the pieces together. Well, but that was
2: before he. But the thing is, when they wrote that, that was before he was killing everyone because he didn't start (laughs) like. There was like a two-year gap between the first murder and the next one we can find, and he didn't really get going until well after this. So after everyone had forgotten this, which was really smart, he was really good. He was really canny about how to avoid these local police departments, how to come in, kill a family, and be gone before anyone even knows it happened. Um, So anyway, I found that within a couple of months of coming on. And at that point, we knew we had a real story with a beginning, middle, and end, even if it's told in reverse chronological order. (laughs) Um, So so once we did that, we started going back and trying to fill in and figure out uh, how many more crimes there are what the context is like, how much can we figure out about this? And that took about four years of research before we were done with it. It was a big task. And
0: in total, like yeah. you've managed to find basically, I, I think by your your own admission, something like maybe 500 words ever written about this guy's yeah.
2: life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we don't know. We don't know much about him at all. Um you know, and five hundred words is honestly is kind of a kind of a lot in the context of some of these cases, where there'll just be a paragraph written about some of right. these families who died. And obviously, those are the low information events where we're not totally sure if that's uh, that was related or not. But you would be surprised how little notice was taken of some of these incredibly gruesome, horrible, devastating events. Um, you know, you think that. It's really shocking to see how quickly people forget these huge murders. We have this expectation um, that we're going to run in this true crime boom that we're in right Right. now. There's this expectation you're going to run out of murders at some point. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) are not. There are so many forgotten murders even happening, you know, even connected to famous people like um, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, servant ax murdered his family um, at their at his Uh, farm home in Wisconsin. People have completely forgotten this event. Uh, It's Frank Lloyd Wright is a huge deal, but people have kind of, you know, there's a Wikipedia entry about it, but there's not like five podcasts about it. There's just a ton of different events that, are completely fascinating, tell a huge story about the time and context in which they took place. And that's kind of one of the things we hope for with the book. And what we're seeing from the emails that we're getting, a lot of people are using this as a jumping off point to go and do more research into this. I really don't think this is going to be the last book written about this. Maybe not and eventually, maybe not even the best book because you know, <laughs> we did this all. I did this all in Lawrence, Kansas. I didn't do we didn't basically do any trips to go research anything. Uh. We just looked at old newspapers. people who live in, you know Colorado Springs or uh, Brookfield or um, uh, the Panhandle of Florida. Can go and look for local archives that are going to have a lot more information and shed a lot more light on what happened to these families. You weren't getting get into could.
0: microfiche. In I local was not libraries getting into. I,
2: I did a little microfiche, but for the most part, no. I was, and that's you know, it sounds impressive that I did this a hundred years afterwards, but really, it's just the technology catching up. Uh-huh. You couldn't have done this before without a searchable archive of small town newspapers from across the country. That's the only way to really see this pattern playing out Um, until he reached, well, as I said earlier, um, he did, they were, they knew that he was, they knew there was a serial killer, even though they didn't have the language for it at the time. But that's only when he was killing people like every other week for most of this, (laughs) it was at least a couple of months, if not years between events um, there would there, be— There's a
0: period here where he did two families in the same night in Colorado. Yes, yeah. And then the next week in Kansas. yeah like, and then Valeska
2: it, right after that. It's super, super It escalates intense. in the way it that escalates. you understand
0: we have the language for now. But yeah, like, exactly. Yeah.
2: And I think my theory on that is he was 35 with his first event in 1898. This is 1911, 1912. He's 50. He knows he's nearing the end of his life. He knows people are getting into it. He's just in his fuck it stage where he's just <laughs> going out and— killing as many people as he can without worrying quite as much about being caught. And it also reflects a larger trend in, uh, who he chose to kill. So the first like 10 years, 1898 to 1906 or whatever, 1909, um, he was killing people in very, uh, who happened to be near trains in fairly rural areas. So people on farms, people who were isolated. And then he would set fire to the house afterwards, in part to uh, destroy evidence, in part just because that was part of his thing. Right. Um, then after, once he gets to this intense part, he switches to um, houses in small towns. So houses with a lot of neighbors where they're going to find it immediately. Oh. So it's a lot more careless uh, but he also quit setting houses on fire, which tends to attract less attention and gives him more time to get the hell out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. So L- yeah. literally Dodge. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly.
0: I, but yeah, I know that we, uh, won't run out of true crime. I, that used to be my fear too. Like we've gone through all the murders, like yeah. at some point yeah. we're out. Uh, but, uh, this week, uh, on, uh, on film Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, we got to see some people that have seen the new film, uh, once oh, upon a yeah. time in Hollywood, uh, who were very upset that the film does not explain all of the things about the Manson murders. And if they hadn't heard about it, they, they, it, it was They're one like of the, we, we threw a, a Viking funeral for the concept of curiosity. Cause it <laughs> used to be if I encountered something I didn't know about, then I would go read about it later. And then right. you knew about it. And also, who doesn't know what the Manson? Uh, I know. So I have Who's so, going so, to
2: see Tarantino and doesn't know what the Manson yeah, murders uh-huh. are, right?
0: And even if you don't, like, it, it, it was the conversation I got into with a with a different friend. Is like, if you if you didn't know what they are at all, then you just thought that this was another fictional part of the movie. So you had to know just enough to know that it was a real thing but not enough to know what it is and then to be angry. It's a very particular sweet spot for being a shit human being. Uh, So (laughs) we're not going to run out of true crime, but we can just keep telling these stories forever. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: There's a lot of, I mean, in these most famous ones, and that's part of what I was talking about earlier is there's so many fascinating angles. I mean, there's a whole subsection here that's basically, you know, about race in America and this difficult period leading up to, uh, the red summer of 1919. Um,
0: because black people were often blamed or even hung for yes, these crimes. Yes, they were
2: lynched. Yeah, many in many cases were. Well, not many, but a few of these cases were lynched. And in some cases, um, he targeted black families. He killed black families, and their murders were not taken as seriously by the police. And in one case, um, this 18-year-old girl, who's clearly just like having some mental health issues, uh, claimed that she was responsible for all of for about 30 of these subset of murders and she was convicted even though everyone was kind of like really did she really do this I don't know so they convicted her for one murder she was in for 10 years her name is Clementine Barnabet, and I would just love to see somebody really dig in on her I might return to it later in my career because it's just a fascinating case in which um you know about I think it was 10 black families were killed in uh, 1910 and 1911 in western Louisiana and eastern Texas. And a couple of them are the man from the train. Um, One of them is very close to his typical profile, but a lot of them are not related at all. We can tell because it's the wrong side of the axe. There's a bunch of attention-seeking stuff that um, the killer did that he wouldn't do. Uh, it's the wrong time of day, et cetera. Um and I have no idea who was committing these murders. And I'm r I am i do not believe it's Clementine. I don't believe most of them were our guy. And uh I just have no idea. I'd love to see someone else take so up. So it might Mantua.
0: be some of the first cases of like copycat stuff where like yeah. racists were able to be like, oh, we could just do yeah. that and they'll think it's that same exactly. guy. Oh shit. That's I don't terrible. know if it was <laughs>
2: necessarily about him because he didn't have a national profile yet but i think that they saw the opportunity to he they saw that black families were terrified right and they took the opportunity to turn that into not just a community in pain but took the opportunity to terrorize that community and to um you know really fuck with their lives and it was pretty horrific. And, and you still see that today. Um, There were a few black churches that were right. set on fire. That's the same area. That's the same um, area of Louisiana. So you see how these, you know, these tensions have erupted into violence again and again throughout our history, and we're still not really dealing with them.
0: And you have sort of an interesting, like, there's an interesting epilogue to his story, which is that you think that maybe he went back to Germany at the end of his life because there's then a series of axe murders in Germany.
2: There's just the one very famous axe murder that we think might be connected, Hinterkaifeck. Um, And I'm, we're... Neither of us speak German, so right. we haven't looked at it as closely as we have everything else in here. But I love that you have of,
0: a four hundred page book, and you're like, "This is just the limitations we yeah, had working." It from really boards. is. If only it we really could have, <laughs>
2: uh, you know, we're doing the work of connecting across a broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's except for Valeska, we don't get super, super, super in depth. Um, and I'm hoping that, especially with some of these, I'd love to see more on the Newtons. Uh, the cassaways who were one of the families I was just talking about that was committed by him fascinating story of this um, mixed-race family uh, Lewis cassaway was such a he was such a active member of the community he was uh, in the local Republican Party when Republican parties were about anti-racism mm-hmm. instead of embracing mm-hmm. racism um, he was a local school janitor he's one of the most people I found who's the most whose life was the most chronicled mm. in the paper before his death. Um, so he was really leading this incredible life, making progress for his community, and then it was cut short so suddenly. And we've, But because he was such a beloved member of the community, we've got a wealth of detail about that. And I believe that there's even more detail to be found if you were to live in San Antonio, which is where he lived. So you're listening in san antonio go look up the Casaways, please <laughs> <That's
0: it. laughs> do you have any questions about the world of true crime
1: <laughs> i mean a million <laughs> um how far along how far along are you
2: in your next book i am just writing the sample chapter now can't talk a ton mm-hmm. about it yet um it's definitely gonna because it be, might be a
0: couple of years and you don't want somebody else to run away with it. Exactly,
2: yes. exactly. Well it's gonna be a huge it's gonna be another five years before this one is done. I don't know. Mm. I've got another idea that I'm working on that's in the true crime area but not mm. so murdery. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I would love to talk about it so much because I've spent the last six months just working on this. Uh, sample chapter. But unfortunately, my agent has told me I'm not allowed to. So but hopefully after I get my book deal, maybe I can come back and talk more about it. Nice.
0: What is it like to spend just like four years? And I guess now. Further years down the line, just researching axe murder. Like it seems like it's a lot.
2: (laughs) Well, um, you know, this was it was uh, it was pretty grueling. The first few months I was just doing this pretty much full time. Uh, and I started having trouble sleeping and I was like, I can't deal with this. I can't be researching murders after dark anymore. Um, so you have to leave your
0: work at work. Exactly. Five o'clock every day.
2: Uh, Exactly. You know, my dad and I are very similar people. We have a lot of similar flaws and he's taught me a lot of bad work habits. And one of them (laughs) is just work all the time whenever you feel like working and then don't work for a while. But I had to set, like, not follow his example and not send him, respond to his 3 a.m. emails at 3 a.m. about Axe Murder. Um, so what I did was... These I are would... all
0: things that seem to resonate in this household.
2: <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I still do that, and it's a little different now. Anyway, um, so I would work on it in the morning, and then in the afternoon, I would go work at the Boys and Girls Club at my old elementary school, which is right down the street. Mm-hmm. So that would be a kind of a nice counterweight, because I was reading about child murders all morning and then going and playing with the children who are alive right now.
0: uh, It doesn't sound like it helps that much. Like that seems like a...
2: Uh, No, it was good because it was, you know, getting out of the house, uh, getting some exercise, um, getting some separation from it. Because it's, you know, dad's always working on a million different things. While I was working on this, I was pretty much just working on this, just researching and looking at newspaper after newspaper after newspaper. So I had to... um, I had to I had to change it up a little bit and make sure I wasn't doing nothing but this because that would have been <laughs> very grim. It's it's so funny though because like so many people use
1: true crime as like. A way to wind down, Where like, like a way to... Exactly. Yeah, I I she know. was listening
0: to my favorite murder while while making our wedding cake. Yeah, so, like,
1: <laughs> yeah. It's baked into I, our relationship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I ju- I just started uh, with a new therapist actually, and she was asking me like, "So, what do you do to decompress from work?" And I was like, "I listen to a lot of murder stuff actually." And she said that is. Very common, yes. which I knew, but it's nice to have validation. Yeah, from it's, an interesting,
2: um, it's an interesting pressure release. It's kind, of, it's kind of like imagining the worst thing that could happen mm-hmm. to comfort yourself that it's not that bad, yeah. that it always could be worse. <laughs> At least you're probably not getting murdered tonight. Probably, probably not tonight. Not. You never know, but probably <laughs> not. And that's one thing that will comfort me a little bit. I'm like, well, you know what? If I ever get mur- murdered, I know there will be some podcasts about it yeah. because <laughs> solving a murder and then getting murdered – yeah, somebody
0: book. will listen to this as research for your murder. Exactly,
2: uh-huh. exactly. Hi, future <laughs> scholars. <laughs> please solve it. Please, don't. <laughs> please Otherwise, I'll haunt. Have to haunt this house. I'm just gonna house, put that so.
1: out there. If any of us are murdered, somewhat, please solve yes, it. Please. The future please people listening <laughs> to this. Oh, please God. solve my murder <laughs> is, is a good God. shirt. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy.
0: Oh boy. Uh, what? What else? What were some of the weirdest parts of the uh, the? the story that you were just like, I can't believe that we're going down this road. Wait,
2: let me think for a second. Um, I have a million from, oh, so you're asking me to go into my mental archives here, (laughs) which have been pushed out by other weird stuff at this point. Uh, oh, one of the weirdest ones, uh, was this in, um, Cottonwood, Alabama, uh, the Christmas family, uh, there was a bizarre, this is one of our lower information events that we're less sure about.
0: Okay.
2: Um, and I'm just going to read to you this newspaper piece that we print in there. Okay. Uh, following the, the arrest yesterday of Will Christmas, a son, and Walter Holland, a son-in-law in connection with the triple murder of the Christmas family, new and sensational developments were brought to light today through the medium and detective, his assistant, a ventriloquist's a superstitious black man and the black man's mule. So it's you basi- got to walk
0: me through everything. This is
2: incredibly bizarre. So there is this biblical story about how um, a mule talks to a man and gives him some revelation. And I guess this is kind of what that's playing off of. Um, okay, so private detectives at the time were basically spies. They weren't like um, they didn't have any kind of respectability. Part a big part of this book is about how, you know, the police force is plenty fucked up now. Uh-huh. A hundred years ago, it was not only fucked up. They had no idea what the hell they were doing. There were no procedures. They had no, <laughs> like, training whatsoever. It right. was just whoever wanted to be nosy and have authority, which is a bad combination, um, could become a cop or a private detective who would often just, like, look around, root around, not really solve anything, but take all of the reward money. Okay. Um. So, anyway... Uh, Detective Franklin, uh, he pretended to be an escaped criminal in Georgia, uh, and he hired a black man to bring him his meals out in the woods. And this man had a mule. Um, And so, according to this detective he began to believe that this guy who was bringing him his food knew something about the case but wouldn't tell him anything about it. Um, so he hid out in the woods where this guy was with his mule, threw his voice and pretended to be the mule talking to this man and talked him into confessing what he knew about the murders by throwing his voice as a mule. Uh, I think this case is bullshit. I think this, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's somebody... Pulling a fast one, but there is an amusing, uh, uh, well, not, there's an interesting cartoon that depicts this scene. It's one of our few illustrations. That's one thing I was frustrated with with the book is that there's not a lot of illustrations and they could have used some maps. It's really bizarre. So that would be one of yeah, the that's, really uh... weird stories.
0: Yeah. None of that tracks. That's uh...
2: (laughs) exactly. And we look at it now and we're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Who would fall for that? Right. Well, racism makes people stupid. So, you know, that makes sense. Another weird one um, would be the case of Reverend Kelly. Who was one of the people who uh, was accused of the crime, and I believe he kind of confessed. This guy was a fucking creep. He would set ad- <laughs> he would set ads in the newspaper that was like, "Please, I would like someone to come and do my typing in the nude, young girls only, please." Like pre- oh, he's one, one of Spring those uh, topless yeah. cleaner services. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so there were a lot of weird stories in here. I mean, uh, and just learning about the little quirks of uh, you know, railroad life and um, farm life in this era was really interesting to me. And just the gap in technology that was one thing that I hadn't realized before this. And one thing that I think Dad does a really good job of elucidating in this book is um, how quickly technology was developing at this stage. Uh, where, you know, in 1900, Nobody had cars. In 1910, people did indeed have cars. Same deal with telephones. Pretty much no one had it in 1900, but by 1910, it was a pretty common thing to experience. Information could now outpace a
0: guy jumping on a railroad.
2: Exactly, exactly. Um, And it was also, that's reflected in the development of newspapers. You know, beforehand you would, um, it was really sketchy to try and circulate stories through ap or whatever but by 1910 those services were much more uh standardized much better at getting the facts right and not uh, misprinting stuff or um just straight you know not sharing the news when it needed to be shared so yeah
0: it seems like in a book about axe murders you you've written about a much more the the much darker thing is like the what america was at this point like there's so much worse and like while, while there was an axe murder, it seems like everyone around all of these things is actually also equally shit.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's America, though. Anytime you start learning about its history, you start learning about all the fucked up shit we were doing at right. the time. And how we haven't really addressed any of those things at all. So, Yeah.
0: Boy, this was fun. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it must be fun at parties. Like uh,
2: <laughs> I did have get some uh get some uh, ammunition out of this while it was in progress cuz people wouldn't believe me. They'd be like this is made up. You're not this is not real. <laughs> right. I'm like no, now it's real. I'm publishing it with Scribner. Uh, <laughs> so yeah yeah it's uh it's it's been an interesting journey for sure not one that I expected to take you know dad was always obsessed with true crime and I've always enjoyed true crime Mm -hmm. I love In Cold Blood that's one of my favorite books um and I've enjoyed many as Helter Skelter is a great book um but I'd never been as into it dad's basically obsessed with two things murder and baseball and he always (laughs) has if only
0: one day the two could cross
2: (laughs) um I mean, I'm surprised he hasn't written a book just about murder and baseball. Um, so I always, it was interesting to collaborate with him on this. Uh, you know, I was, when I was coming off this, I'd been living in Virginia for eight years. So I hadn't spent that much time with my dad during that time. Uh, so it was really good to uh, connect over this and kind of find this professional rapport mm-hmm. that I don't think a lot of people get to have with their parents. So that what, was me. What is, because
0: yeah. he, 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 it is it is. Near the top of my list of fears. What is it like to work professionally with your father? It went a lot. Do you have any tips or tricks for that?
2: (laughs) It went a lot better than, honestly, (laughs) I thought it would at the beginning. Um, I was, you know, worried because my dad's a really, really, can be a really prickly guy. You guys have seen his Twitter. It's (laughs) fucking nuts. Uh, Sorry, Dad. Um, He won't be listening to this. I think he
0: knows. And you've mentioned before (laughs) that, like, your dad's uh, online following is gigantic but that it's... like he is also a boomer with access to, yes, to social media and doesn't always know what he's doing and you have to sometimes argue with him in the public sphere about uh
2: i mean a couple of times he's had really stupid opinions and he's had less stupid opinions and or shared them less in the last six months since i finally was like you gotta stop this can't do this anymore uh, it was funny you uh, saw that tweet he tweeted this weird thing about um about if everyone had bed bugs, no one would care about bed bugs, <laughs> which is I don't understand at all. The bed bugs are still gonna bite you. Yeah, hot you, take You're still hot gonna bite.
0: And your response was, "Sounds like your trip's going well." Like, it just... and he
2: immediately. And I hope if you're uh, this won't air for a little while. Right. But. Okay. So uh, he. He uh, DM'd me and he was like, "You know, you really shouldn't. Which is, you really shouldn't mention when you're out on a trip. Someone will come and steal from your house because they know you're out on a trip. Which is such a boomer dad thing to right. say. <laughs> this belief that everybody's going to come and come for your stuff. But anyway, back if, to your. If
0: someone decides to bling ring Bill James, exactly. you know what? It's.
2: <laughs> I'd like to see them try. Um, <laughs> Don't know what they would get out of it. Uh, I guess he does have some World Series rings now, but they're not going to find it in the house. Anyway, if you're looking to, if you're, if you're reading this to read up on, uh, to figure out how to steal from me, well, don't. There's not a lot to steal. Um, anyway, back to your question about uh, working with him. Yeah, it actually went really well. He can be really prickly, um, but one thing is he's always kind of seen me as his mini-me a little bit. I look like him. I have a lot of his virtues and a lot of his flaws. Uh, I'm the oldest child, I'm the only writer. So um, I think it was kind of natural in that sense for us to eventually uh, work together. And I really have to say, you know, regardless of family connections, if you hire someone as a research assistant and they make a big research discovery, there's a temptation to just take that and be thank you in the acknowledgements, right? And that was never a thing. He would never have done that to me. As soon as I found this, he was like, "All right, well, this is our book that we're going to write together. You're going right. to be on the cover." Uh, Mm. and basically launch my career. Thanks, nepotism. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it was... You
0: cracked a murder from 100 years (laughs) ago. I don't think it qualifies as nepotism. Well, I
2: mean, but would I have gotten the chance to crack a murder from 100 years ago if I wasn't somebody's daughter? No, I wouldn't. So, you know, yes, it's my accomplishment, and I'm not going to pretend it's, uh, you know, just that. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge, especially in the writing world... Um, where so much of this is about who is whose parents, who's got connections. If I you know that now that I've got a little bit of success, I've got to mention, you know, I'm here in part, in large part because my dad's a successful mm-hmm. writer. It didn't just happen by my own hard work bootstraps, et cetera. So, you, you know, yeah, I just feel, you know, talking about feminism. Mm-hmm. I always am thinking about my privilege, whether it's white privilege, class privilege, Whatever, and it's important for me to talk about that class privilege and the, just the privilege of connections, mm-hmm. and that um, you know, I'm very proud of what I've done here. I'm very proud of this book, uh, proud of my you know discovery here. But at the same time, you know, I'm standing on somebody else's 30-year career, not my own. <laughs>
1: yeah, career. you made the most out of an opportunity, exactly. But to exactly. ignore the fact that you were given this opportunity exactly through through your father, exactly. Like, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, of course, yeah.
0: You have any last questions here? No. Okay, no. then uh, we uh, we wrap up the episodes usually by uh, everyone gives a pop culture recommendation, oh uh, something you've watched or read lately, uh, or uh, or something that's always mattered to you, uh, just uh, something fun to uh to end on uh i'd like to recommend there's a book called the man from the train Um, you
1: took mine
0: oh really uh there is a film on amazon prime right now called serenity it is not the space movie it is a movie called serenity don't read anything just go watch it viv showed it to me the other night she knew some of the twisty things and just spent the whole movie watching me waiting for me to lose my shit, and indeed I did.
1: <laughs> we, we were watching very different movies if you've read spoilery reviews, so don't do that. Just go watch one of the weirdest movies of the last couple of years. How? How? <laughs>
0: uh, Viv. Oh, and uh, I'm online oh. at Brock Wilbur and stuff. You can find me there. Viv, where can people find you online?
1: Um, You can find me at Viv underscore Kane on Twitter um, or at themarysue.com every day. Um. So after you read The Man from the Train, um, I finally just read uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark um, by Michelle McNamara about the Golden State Killer. Um, it was, you know, she spent a, a big portion of as her life. As long as I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, really making a lot of headway in, uh, in just figuring out who that guy was, and they, after her death a few years ago, like, they did actually find the the identity of the killer, and um, so it's it's really heartbreaking that she never got to see that, but um, listening to, I, I, I actually uh, listened to the audiobook, which is a, it's a great, it's a great audiobook, and I highly recommend that. Um, just, yeah, great story, uh, hard, hard to listen to or read at times, um, but, yeah,
2: really recommend that after you're done with. Wait, Rachel's book. Very natural transition (laughs) there. Uh, Rachel, where can
0: people find you online?
2: uh, You can find me online at Twitter, rmccarthyjames. Um, And for my recommendation, I'm going to recommend another true crime book, uh, David Grand's Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, Mm -hmm. which beat us for the Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime last year, and deservedly so, because it's really a masterpiece. Um, It's about... Uh, a series of murders on um, Oklahoma reservations in the 1920s. uh, Kind of covers a lot of the same stuff as the man from the train. There's a lot of stuff that private detectives he really goes into, uh, Mm -hmm. the corruption of that field. And he really uncovers this uh, immense injustice that's been perpetrated on many levels um, against Native Americans by the government and by the people who purported to love them the most. Uh, It's really a stunning Stunning book, so I would Shit, recommend that. I can't yeah. wait to read that. Yeah, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grand, so yeah, absolutely. I
0: would never promote the work of anyone that ever beat me for anything, <laughs> so you are a better person than me, like, they beat us, but deservedly so, and you know what?
2: <laughs> David Grand's a really good guy, um, you know, he's uh, been a good mentor to some of my friends, and they've passed on the favor to me, so I really... And it's such a good book. It's really, it's it's really spectacular work. So I would definitely recommend
0: that. Rachel, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for today. having me. Uh, this yeah. has been Missouri Loves Company. Please write reviews, uh, click that, smash that, subscribe smash button, it. smash it, uh, and uh, leave us a comment. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye. You. You.
2: Bye.